Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time, he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed and after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Have you ever had, had uh, something so good or wonderful happen to you in your life, uh, but you didn't have anybody to share it with? You know, I'm talking about something big too. I was a missionary in Thailand and when I was first learning the language uh, Thai, which is a very difficult language, I was in the line to McDonald's because... I like McDonald's. Even in Thailand, I would go to McDonald's. And I remember uh, she kept talking to me in Thai, and I just kept pointing to what I want, the Big Mac. I, I want that Big Mac. And so they brought out a Big Mac, but they brought two Big Macs. And I was trying to give it back, saying I only need one Big Mac. Finally, she handed me a little, a little card in English that says you were a winner today. So you've been selected out of so many people, and you get a free Big Mac. And I'm like, all right. Turned around, wanted to share with everybody, but I couldn't because I can't speak Thai. I couldn't speak Thai at that moment. But I'm not just talking about you get, a, you get an extra Big Mac. I'm talking about something really big, some amazing news that you had, and you wanted to share it with, with anybody. I remember when our first child, Allie, was born. Someone brought a balloon that said, it's a girl. You know, you can go to the store, you get the big balloons or the banners that say it's a girl. We, Allie came like four, three or four weeks early, I think. She, she just was ready to take the world by storm. And so she didn't, she didn't wait until her due date. She came early. And so I wasn't prepared. I didn't have any signs or any banners or anything because I really thought she was going to come late. But thank, thank goodness when we came home, somebody, somebody had the it's a, it's a girl balloon. I, I was so excited about that announcement. I even went out and bought a a banner that said, it's a girl, and I, and I put it on our garage. I wanted the entire neighborhood to know that I was a new dad of a beautiful baby girl. I decorated the house, uh, welcoming Liz and, and Allie home. And like I said, I just wanted everybody to know the good news that we had a baby girl. Now, 
This last week I read about a Chinese farmer who had cataracts removed from his eyes uh, at a Christian mission clinic. And a few days later, the missionary doctor looked out his window and he noticed this farmer holding the end of a long rope. And in a single file line holding to the rope were several dozen blind Chinese who had been rounded up and led for miles to the doctor who had worked a miracle on the farmer's eyes. Think about that. When you have something amazing happened to you, you want to share it with others, right? That's how we who have received God's gift of of eternal life should be. We should be so excited that we got a rope of people lined up and we're bringing them to church on Sunday, right? (laughs) Have you been a part of our journey? You've been a part of this church. You know that we love the Bible. We love preaching verse by verse and we're we're in the middle of the book of Acts. Well, not really the middle, almost the middle. Um, And if if you haven't and you're new with us, you should do yourself a favor uh, later. Go back and listen to the, some of these sermons. Catch, catch yourself up. But we, we go through, we've been going through the book of Acts chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And in my mind, the grand theme of the entire book of Acts is this. Jesus is establishing his church here on earth and sending his people out to grow his church. Moving from where they were locally in Jerusalem to all of the nations. The book of Acts is one of my all-time favorites books. It's this wonderful story that's filled with twists and turns in the plot with villains and heroes and all throughout the great story of Acts that we, we've been studying, we see that God's mission is moving forward. You remember the key verse, it's way back in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, the key verse, and we're going to see it today, and here's what Jesus had, had said when he had commissioned his church and sent them out. He sets the stage for the entire book of Acts when he says this, but you will be But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus started this mission. God's mission is unstoppable. In fact, that's a statement I would encourage you to write down in your notes because that will come up. It'll be a reoccurring theme over and over and over again as we go through the book of Acts. God's mission is unstoppable. God has set his people on a mission after his death, burial, and resurrection. And and like I just read in Acts 1.8, he sent his apostles out to advance and establish his church. And that's what we're reading about. And it's happening today in 2023. God is advancing his church. The church is advancing God's mission. It's a better way to say it. You and I today, all across the world, collectively are a part, a part of the body of Christ. We're sent to proclaim in advance his name. We have the joy and the privilege of being a part of that mission. So today I want to look at, uh, at verses 4 through 17 with you. I know we looked at verse 4 last week, but it kind of sets the stage for where we're at again. So we'll, we'll briefly go over it. But look with me real quick. Let's read, starting in verse 4. It says, Now those who were scattered... That's an important word right there. Scattered, went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. So there are two different words in the ancient Greek language for the idea of scattered. Okay, one has the idea of scattering in the sense of making something disappear, like scattering someone's ashes. The other word has the idea of scattering in the sense of planting or sowing seeds. And this is the ancient Greek word that's used here in our text this morning. And the goal that Saul had was to stop Christianity. That's what he wanted to do. He wanted to stop Christianity. However, all he did was spread the seed all over the place. (laughs) 
That's all he did because everywhere they went, they were preaching the word of God and everywhere they would go, the gospel was spreading and specifically throughout Judea and Samaria. Now listen, evangelism, I wanna give you a definition. Evangelism is a group of ordinary Christians living intentionally in a city to bring joy to it through word and deed, all right? So there's a person in this verse here that I think we need to pay attention to, and there's a place that we need to pay attention to. I wanna begin with the person. I wanna begin with Philip. So we're introduced to a second of the seven who was appointed to the task of waiting tables in the early church and overseeing the church's welfare program. Philip was one of those. We already met Stephen. We, we, we talked about Stephen in chapter seven. Now the text moves to Philip. God's taking another one now, and listen to this. Remember what the qualifications were for these leaders, filled with the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom and of good report. So Philip had that. He's being used by God now in the ministry of an evangelist. And later on we find... Uh, we'll learn more about Philip in the book of Acts. At one point, he's living in Caesarea, and his nickname there is Philip the Evangelist. He gets a nickname. That's a good nickname to have, right? <laughs> Philip the Evangelist. And we're told that by, by that time, he had four daughters. Each, four, each of his daughters possessed the gift of prophecy. So Philip is a godly father. He's raised up four daughters who love Jesus and are actively pursuing Jesus and using their gifts in the ministry. And And at one point, Paul's returning to Jerusalem, and he stops and he spends a few days with Philip in Caesarea. Now, I can imagine that Paul and Philip, as they were there, probably uh, maybe over a meal, over some skyline chili, they're recounting some of the early experiences that they had, right? Stephen and Paul, because they were all there. Now Philip uh, was, was in this situation also. They may have even talked about how their paths had crossed earlier in life, only then they were going different directions how God had brought them together in the communion of the gospel here now, later on in Caesarea. It's amazing, the book of Acts. Totally shows the transformation of lives all throughout the book of Acts. That's the same Philip that we're reading about in our text today. He's a Hellenistic Jew. He's a Greek-speaking Jew, and he's currently now running for his life. But I think it's noteworthy, and I think you should make note, that he didn't run for his life running away from Saul. He didn't go hide in a cave. That was not his response. He didn't go hide in a cave. Instead, he ran to the mission of God. This is important because Philip's circumstances have dramatically changed, but not his mission or his purpose. How many of you know you have a purpose for your life? It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter what you're doing. Your purpose never changes. Everything else might change, but your purpose and your mission does not change. So... He ran straight into the mandate of God. What we see him doing is going to Samaria and he's proclaiming the good news. (laughs) Proclaiming comes from the Greek word caruso and it literally means to make public proclamation. So this is what I think is important for all of us to note about Philip because in reality, he's a lot like me, he's a lot like you. He's just a normal guy, just an ordinary man. He's sent away from a place that he loved, by the way. His life is turned upside down but he remains on this mission for God. He does not forget his purpose. And that mission and that purpose was to proclaim the truth of God publicly. So that's who he was. But then in, we also see uh, what he does in verse six. It says, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what he was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. 
the sign. So in verse six, we, we see uh, what he does as well. So not just who he was, but also what he did. Now, this is an important word, this word signs, because signs point to something, right? That's why we have signs all over the road. When I take my family to Kings Island as we're getting close, there's signs that say Kings Island this way. When I drive my family to Florida and, and we're driving through Georgia, we start seeing the signs for Florida. You know, they start talking about their, their guest stations that give fresh squeezed orange juice. And we know we're getting close when we start seeing those signs. So the kids always ask the infamous question, are we there yet? Don't ask me, are we there yet, until you've at least seen the fresh, squeezed orange juice sign that you're going to see on the road. That, then you know. You don't have to ask me. Look to the road and see where we're at. Follow the signs, right? Signs point to something important. Listen, miracles pointed to the gospel. They gave tangible expression to Jesus' physical kingdom. His kingdom, and I need you to listen, was one of healing, sight, and and a amazing health. That was, his, that was his kingdom. That's what he promised us. Now we're in the in-between stage, right? Because we still live here on this earth and it's still impacted by sin. But I want you to know that miracles pointed to the gospel. Miracles in the Bible, they didn't just show how powerful Jesus was, but, but they were showing the redemptive purpose of Jesus. And you have to see that here. So that's what Philip is doing. And even all the miracles pointed to, to the, the redemptive cause that Jesus was after. Jesus is after your soul. That's what Jesus is after. I mean, it's one thing if we come and we have this amazing service and people's lives are getting touched and all kinds of things are happening at the altar, but then we go back and we live the same lifestyle we had before coming in. Jesus is after our souls. Jesus wants to do something in our lives that points to his redemptive purpose. So when we have a miracle take place in our life, it's to point us and other people to his redemptive purpose. The purpose, again, Jesus came to save people from sin. We cannot save ourselves from sin. We need the power of Jesus Christ to do that. We need the power of the cross to do that. Do you hear me? So anytime we experience a miracle, don't just be, don't just be chasing and pursuing miracles for, for the sake of it, for the thrill of it. Remember, they're all supposed to point you to the redemptive purpose of Jesus. So that's what Philip, that's who he was, that's what he did. And then I want you to understand this. A true witness always involves both word and deed. Always. Okay, so we see this here in Philip's life. But this is interesting too. So that's who Philip is, that's what he did. But where did Philip go? Do you see where he went? He went to Samaria. Again, this is connected back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Because as we look at Samaria, I think what we have to pay attention to is, is both a place and a person. I'm going to get all teachy with you for a minute. I'm going to give you a quick history lesson. We need to pay attention to this place called Samaria. It, goes, it doesn't just go all the way back to Acts 1.8. It goes all the way back to the Old Testament. It goes back to 1 Kings chapter 11 through 14. Because what happens is the nation of Israel is torn into two. Two of the 12 tribes established Judah. Ten of the 12 tribes moved north to set up their capital in Samaria. And they're the northern tribes of Israel. So as a group of people all throughout the book of 1 Kings and even in 2 Kings, we read that repeatedly they chose to forsake the faith of David. And they chose to follow the idols of the land. They were an idolatrous, idolatrous people who had turned their back on God, and they did it in this place called Samaria. And I think it's important that God sent Philip to Samaria for the purpose 
of reclaiming all the nation of Israel back together in this incredible move of the Holy Spirit. I think the place is really important, okay? It was the nation of Assyria in 722 B.C. that came into Samaria and they took all the Israelites captive, okay? Now what the Assyrians would often do in in one of their military tactics is they would take captive a group of people, take them out of their homeland and plant them into another place. So they would force people to be refugees. It was a tactical move because their thought was if we force the people that we've conquered to move out of their homeland, we reduce the likelihood that they're gonna rise up and rebel to reclaim what was theirs. We're gonna force them to live in a different place. So if you look at 2 Kings, we see the story of where the Assyrians had conquered the northern tribes of Israel and Samaria and they had brought in all of these other people that they had conquered to live in Samaria. Again, I'm going somewhere, I promise. (laughs) What then begins to happen is the Israelite people begin to intermarry with the Canaanite people, okay? So this place that was once the northern tribes of Israel now becomes a group of people who are rejected because they had forsaken their faith and they were racially discriminated against because they had intermarried and were no longer of the pure Jewish faith. So that's what we have happening here. This is where Philip's being sent to, okay? And I I see some really powerful truths in this, in the fact that God had sent Philip to Samaria. So much behind why God would choose Philip and choose Samaria. One is to reclaim these 10 tribes, like I said, of Israel, to experience this Pentecost, right, that we we saw in the beginning. And in fact, we're about to see in a minute here, kind of a second Pentecost comes to usher them into this incredible movement of God. The second reason, I think, is for you and me to understand that regardless of your past, regardless of your history, regardless of how how you may feel as though you have been rejected or mistreated, you are invited into God's family and you are invited into God's mission. And this is a cause for celebration. This is something that we rejoice about, we celebrate, amen? Okay, look with me at verse six through eight. Well, we already read verse six, but... For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were being paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. The gospel is now being preached in the the city of Samaria, and the result of the gospel in the hearts of the people is what? Much joy. That's the result of the gospel being preached, much joy. Now, This gets me thinking sometimes, especially as the pastor of New Heights Church, I've asked myself, is there much joy in Fairfield because of our presence? Is there much joy in Fairfield because of our presence? And I don't mean just as a church, because I've always said the church is not an organization, but a movement, and a movement of what? A movement of people, right? A movement made up of people, and they're impacting the world. Is your presence, is my presence in this city causing much joy? Is my presence in my neighborhood causing much joy? Is my presence in my workplace causing much joy? And I want to just mention one more thing on this topic, in this story. One of the primary sources of joy, one of the main reasons for much joy was the reconciliation of races. Kind of touched on it already, but I'm going to go a little deeper. Again, Philip was a Jew. The people of Samaria were Samaritans. There was hatred. There was mistrust. It existed between these two races, and it stretched back a thousand years. There's a lot of history here. Jews were really big into purity. In fact, Jews wouldn't even wear mixed clothing. Okay, so of course they didn't care much for mixing with the Samaritans. 
They would not even sit on something that a Samaritan had touched. In fact, they would walk around Samaria because they refused to travel through Samaria, even if it meant adding a day to their travel. But guess what? Samaritans, they weren't so nice either. They built their own temple, said it was the real one. They loved to antagonize the Jews in ways that would go from just pranks to just being absolutely cruel. In fact, in those days, they didn't have cell phones. They didn't have ways of communicating like we do. So they would communicate to each other through smoke signals. You know, Samaria is in the middle. And so they would get on these mountains and they would send off smoke signals. And do you know what the the Samaritans loved to do? They would love to go up on these mountains, take uh, take captive the Jewish people, and then they would send smoke signals as a prank. And so all the leaders would gather into Jerusalem and come and say, what's going on? Nothing's going on. (laughs) They love to antagonize the Jewish people. It's like when we were little kids and we used to go ring a doorbell and then we'd run and hide in the bush. Yeah, that's kind of what's going on here, right? Fake smoke signals. They would also launch pigs on the night before Passover. They would launch them into the temple and you know what would happen as they launched these pigs into the temple? Well, the pigs would die and what happens when you fall from a long distance? They would explode. Then what happens? Everybody's ceremonially unclean. Throws off the whole Passover, all of the events. They loved to do this. So uh, they, were, they were antagonists. They did not like each other, but it went way beyond just this like rivalry that, that you and I would think of when we think of like high school rivalries. It got nasty. In fact, the Samaritans would attack pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem. Why would they wait to attack them on their way to Jerusalem? Because when they were going to Jerusalem, well, they were loaded up with all kinds of gifts for the temple. People lost their life. So there, there is a history here, and there is two people groups that absolutely hate each other. And again, the Jews would retaliate by destroying the Samaritan temple. This nasty, nasty rivalry. People were getting hurt. Hatred ran deep. So here is a Jew. Here is Philip being embraced by the Samaritans. And when they believed there was much joy in the city, look at that. When they believed there was much joy in the city, don't you love what the gospel does? This is what the gospel does. The gospel creates a unity that overcomes years of hurt and mistrust. That's what the gospel does. A unity that we long for, but seem powerless to accomplish in our society. I want you to know society is trying to do this right now. In fact, listen to what one sociologist says. He says, we know how to forcibly integrate society. We know how to pass laws to guarantee fairness. What we haven't been able to do is make races and cultures love and embrace each other. You know why? Because what politics is unable to do, the gospel can do. The gospel can do this. And some of you are going to say, well, how, Pastor Justin, how? How is this going to happen? Because the, the gospel identifies one common problem, sin. And then one common savior, Jesus. And you know what it does is it creates a new humanity. Some theologians call it the third race. So, you know, I, I'm a Caucasian American. I, I don't really know how to trace my roots. I, my last name's Hansen. I'm Norwegian. We spell it E-N. Uh, when I was at Central Bible College, Kirk Hansen, his mom, his mom attends this church. He grew up in this church. He would always say, you spell your name wrong. It's O-N. But, but I'm Norwegian, so I have the Norwegian last name. I have German ancestry, Norwegian. I, I've even got some Russian. Um, so I'm kind of all over the place. Uh, 
so really my, I guess I would consider my race to be white then in America. I wouldn't say German or wouldn't say Norwegian. I would just say white. Well, that's my first race, right? But my third race is in Jesus Christ. And that should be my, my most important race. It doesn't erase my other race. It just outweighs it. Do you hear what I'm saying? Now, if, if the gospel overcame theirs, can't it overcome ours? New Heights Church, listen, we have to be a multicultural church. We have to be a multicultural church. Not just a multicolored church. Not just a multicolored church. We've got to be a multicultural church. A lot of, a lot of people from one race want a multicolored church, which means a, d- a bunch of different people who have different, you know, we, we're made different, right? Doing traditionally one culture's set of music, everything's centered around one culture, but we'll say we want everybody, everybody's welcome, but then we're really just one culture, right? In a multicultural church, everyone's going to feel a little uncomfortable. Got really quiet. (laughs) Everyone's going to feel a little uncomfortable because we're always going to be doing something a little outside of our culture. But you put up with it because our unity in Jesus outweighs our cultural preference. Did you just hear me? Our unity in Jesus outweighs our cultural preference. It does. We can't be so married to our cultural preference that we miss out on what God's trying to do. And God dying on the cross, what we see here happening in Samaria is supposed to be happening everywhere. Jesus died on the cross to bring everybody together. We can do this. It can be accomplished. And here's the thing. There is a time to leave behind past grievance, to choose to put away mistrust, choose to put away suspicion. Because guess what? In our text today, I want you to know this, there's no evidence that they went back and resolved everything, the Samaritans and the Jews in the church. They chose to put aside those things, though, and they decided to move forward. Look, the church has an ugly history. Horrible, nasty things have been done in the name of Jesus. If we went back and we looked at all the things that we've, and we can learn from our mistakes, but I don't want to live in those mistakes. I want to move forward. I'm going to live by the book. I'm going to do everything I can until Jesus calls me home to see the power of the gospel move amongst all people. That's what we're seeing here. So they chose to put aside cultural preferences and embrace one another in Jesus. Man, New Heights Church, do you want this? You want this? I want it. I want it. It's, gonna, it's not going to come naturally. It's only going to happen through the power of the gospel. That's the only way for this to happen. All right, so now we're going to come to verse 9, and we're going to see this kind of a confusing message. <laughs> this is important for us to understand because the unstoppable mission of God is often, oftentimes going to take us to hard places. Don't try to avoid the hard places. It's going to oftentimes ask us to do some hard things. We can't always avoid the hard things. So I want you to look at this real quick. Look with me at verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city, and he amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. Verse 10, they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying this man is the power of God that is called great. Is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. 
But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So Simon's magic was probably a mixture of uh, genuine scientific knowledge. You know, he probably was educated when it came to medicine, astronomy, math, whatever. Uh, and then there was probably mixed with superstition. So he, he, in those times, they used amulets, they would use charms, they would interpret dreams, they would read horoscopes, they would read your palm. So it was probably a mixture of a little bit of both. In our modern era, this would be probably the equivalent of people who read horoscopes or use crystals to claim that they, they are seeing the future, all right? Now, here's the question. Did this guy have actual power? Did Simon have actual power? And I want, I want you to know, I think it is possible that he did, and hear me out and keep listening, because there's another magician in Acts whom Paul said was filled with the devil, which implies that some of his magic was demonically empowered, and we see that in Acts chapter 13, if, you're, if you want to read that story. Acts chapter 13, verse 10. So yeah, there might actually be demonic power here that this guy is tapping into. And I've heard Christians who I absolutely love Close, close friends who I love defend following a Christian leader who's not preaching sound doctrine because signs and wonders are following his preaching. So they say it must be a sign. He's, he's full of the power of the Holy Spirit. I sat and had a talk with someone who I truly love. This person was influential in my own spiritual life. And he was following this leader that was clearly not teaching something from the Bible. And I remember saying, I don't, I don't understand how you can follow him when, when you, you, the, the books that you've given you know clearly aren't aligned with scripture. And he would say, I don't understand how you can argue with it, Justin, when all those signs and wonders are taking place. It's happening today. A lot of people now with, with media can get on and, and push their message and you get a lot of people that get big, huge followings. But the, the idea that it must be a sign that he's full of the power, the power he's, he's full of all these signs and wonders, is so he must be full of the Holy Spirit. No, that's not a sign. That can be one sign, but what he's preaching and teaching has to align with God's word or he's not full of the Holy Spirit. Do you understand me? You guys ever seen the movie The Illusionist? A movie that came out in 2006, a movie about an illusion gone horribly wrong. But anyway, the movie pits two 19th century magicians against each other. And they, they battle it out for supremacy. Who's going to be the best magician? Terrible consequences happen when these, these two escalate their feud. But they don't just try to outweigh each, outwit each other. They literally try to destroy each other. And that's the whole plot of the movie. Here was my takeaway, though. Regardless of the flash, the lights, the smoke, the mirrors, magicians work on, on this basic principle. I'm going to distract your focus over here so that I'm free to make this move over here. And bam, I got a trick, right? It's consistently all about distracting the focus so they can make a move. There's so much here that I think the casual observer would be fascinated to understand when we're reading this passage. They may think, man, we got to learn all about sorcery. Let me learn about magicians. Let me learn about wizardry in ancient times. But in my opinion, we've got to be careful not to allow the flash to cause us to get distracted from what I believe is the main point of these verses here. All right, so... The Samaritan people were receiving this, who were receiving this message of the gospel through Philip were actually a very religious and spiritual group of people. But they were distracted. 
Keep listening. See, there was this remnant, a sect of Samaritans there that even to this day would say they were the true remnant and following the line of Ephraim and Manasseh, two of the the tribes of Israel. Even to this day, there's a small sect of these people that still rigidly and religiously practice their faith according to their scripture. And that's where it gets a little interesting because the Samaritan people had their own translation of scripture. They had their own version of the Torah. They had the first five books of the Bible, their own version of it. It was similar, but it was different. Listen to me. It was similar, but it was different. They were religiously following this faith, but unfortunately, they were not worshiping the one true God. They were sincere people, but sincerely wrong. They were led astray by their best of intentions of pursuing some level of faith. That's important for us to note because, listen to me, while true prophets will direct praise towards God, false prophets receive praise as fuel for their own selfish egos. In fact, even in the Samaritan language, their words would use the great and powerful God. You see, here in our text, when we read assignment, he's given, he's given that title. And what I think we can understand from that, uh, at least for the most part, pretty carefully without reading into the text uh, a whole lot, is that people of Samaritan community looked at Simon, and whether they attributed to him that he was God, they at least attributed to him that he had the power of God. Okay, They had elevated this person to a point that they began to follow a man rather than follow the one true God. That's the point of warning for us here. If we begin to follow a man rather than following the one true God, we are in trouble. And it's really easy for us to get captivated by a leader. Charismatic leader, he just sounds so good. Things are happening. How can you deny it? He had the place packed. The stadium was packed. Things were happening. How can you deny that he's not a man of God? Well, is what he's preaching aligning with God's word? In a day and age in which we've become... We have so many self-acclaimed prophets and apostles. We absolutely need to be careful to make sure we are following Jesus. You want to follow Jesus? Know his word. Know his word. Listen, false prophets and false apostles, they love the accolades. And in order for them to keep coming, they're going to set people's hope in all the wrong places. Our hope is in Jesus and Jesus alone. Not in a man, not in a leader. It's in Jesus and Jesus alone. You get to know Jesus through his word. Because listen, authentic servants of God will always exalt the cross so that people's faith might, be, might not be based on human wisdom but on God's power. Did you hear me? And we get to the last part of our, our message today where this mission is confirmed. And you see this mission that Philip started where he took the good news, he proclaimed the gospel of Jesus and the kingdom of God to the people of Samaria. The apostles back in Jerusalem started to catch wind of this. And so they sent Peter and John to go check this out. Peter and John, they go check it out. Peter and John were two of the guys that were around the table that had commissioned Philip to do the service and ministry for God. So here they come to confirm what was happening. I want to read with you verse 13 through 17. It says, even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Verse 14, now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them to Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them. 
that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Verse 17, then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. I want you to do something. I want you to circle the word, if you're okay with it, circle the word Jerusalem, circle the word Samaria, and draw an arrow from one to the other. This is what's important here, okay? What God is doing here in his unstoppable and great mission is he, he's moving the church from being exclusive to the Jewish faith in Jerusalem to be inclusive of all nations. So we're starting to see Acts 1-8 lived out here. And Peter and John get sent to Samaria. <laughs> why, am I, why am I laughing at that? Well, it's funny. I think it's hilarious that Peter and John are the ones that get sent. Because Peter and, and, and John, are, they start praying for them, and they're praying in favor of them, that they might be filled with the Holy Spirit. Again, how funny is that? And some of you are asking, why is that so funny? Well, remember their background concerning these guys in Samaria. If you don't, let me read it to you. This is out of the Gospel of Luke. It said, it came to pass when the time had come for him, Jesus, to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and send messengers before his face. And they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. Now remember the animosity that's been going on. And when the disciples, uh, James and John, Sir John was there, same John who was with Peter and Acts, saw this, they said this. Look what they said. Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? <laughs> so that's their mindset. They're ready to push the red button. They're ready to wipe out these people off the face of the earth. I think they're even kind of excited about it. But Jesus turned and said more, well, he, he did more than just said. He actually rebuked them, and here's what he had to say. You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And so they went to another village. Isn't that amazing? The apostles who were praying, fire come down from heaven, are now praying, praying that they would be filled with the fire of the Holy Spirit. They once wanted them blown away, now they want them saved. They once wanted God to totally wipe them out from the face of the earth, now they want them saved. You talk about life transformation. Now listen to me. When the Holy Spirit comes and enters your life, transformation takes place. When the Holy Spirit comes and enters your life, transformation takes place. Lives are completely and radically transformed because their hearts and minds are transformed. See, I think it's important to bring this to your attention because here's the deal. God is the God of second chances. Man, they blew it the first time and here they get a second chance. And I'm thankful that I serve a God of second chances. I love it. God is a God of second chances. So here they are now with a transformed mindset, and look what God has them do. They laid their hands on them, and they what? Look at verse 17. They received the Holy Spirit. Now this passage gets a lot of people confused. <laughs> the fact that these Christians received the Holy Spirit uh, in what seems to be a subsequent experience to their salvation, it's caused a lot of controversy and confusion. You guys know I don't, I don't stay away from that, so we're going to talk about it. <laughs> Again, what I have always said is we need to allow the text to speak for itself. All right, And I believe that the Bible gives a good explanation of what's happening here. The Bible teaches a threefold relationship between the Holy Spirit and the believer. 
They're represented by three Greek prepositions, para, en, and epi. So I want to show you a verse real quick. I want to show you this. It says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give another helper to be with you forever, verse 17, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So when Jesus, speaking about the Holy Spirit, says he dwells with you, that's the Greek preposition para. It's a preposition that means to come alongside someone either to comfort them, encourage them, or to convict them about something they need to change. So we could call this the with relationship, okay? The with relationship. Now, we believe that the Holy Spirit is both with Christians and non-Christians. Keep listening to me. We believe that he's both with Christians and non-Christians. First of all, he's with the Christian, right? He comes alongside them to comfort them and encourage them in difficult times. But, he, but he's also with the non-Christian in the sense that he's convicting them of their sins and convincing them that they need Jesus as their Savior to forgive them of all their sins. So that's the with or the para-relationship. Just so you know, you didn't come to Jesus on your own. It was a gift. The Holy Spirit. That's why you were able to come to Jesus. Nothing on your own. All right, and so that's what we're seeing here, okay, but he's also, but in in this verse, we also see another relationship between the Christian and the Holy Spirit, right? Look with me, and that's the in relationship. In John 14, 17, after Jesus says the Holy Spirit um, is with you, he says, dwells with you. He then adds, and he will be in you. He will be in you. So dwells with you, and then he adds, and he will be in you. That's the Greek preposition, en speaks of coming, coming inside or filling up. And I believe that when a person accepts Jesus as their Savior, becomes a Christian, in that very moment, they're filled or they're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That very moment. In fact, that's what Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 3.16, right? He says, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even, oh, sorry. <laughs> Reading the wrong, here we go. This is the Apostle Paul. Do you not know that you are in God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? In you, okay? Likewise, again, in Romans 8, 9, Paul, again, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So this is what we would call being filled with the Holy Spirit. The moment you become a born-again Christian, you're filled with the Holy Spirit. He now dwells in you. The evidence that the Holy Spirit is dwelling inside of you is what? It's a changed life. That's the evidence that the Holy Spirit's dwelling inside of you. The evidence that he's in you, your life has changed. So in Galatians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul, again, is describing what the life of a non-Christian who's not filled with the Holy Spirit looks like. And he mentions lifestyles, right? Sexual immorality, drunkenness, partying, and violence. But then in contrast, it says in Galatians 5.22, this is what he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness. So when the Holy Spirit dwells in you, he does what? He changes you. He changes you. So there's the with relationship where the Holy Spirit comes alongside you either to comfort or convict you. There's the in relationship where the Holy Spirit fills you and changes you. But what we believe here at New Heights is there's a third relationship that a believer can have with the Holy Spirit and that's the upon 
relationship, which is what we're seeing here in our text this morning. Remember Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The word upon is the Greek preposition epi. Can be translated over. One translation renders it overflow. And additionally, the word power, you will be my witness in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to all the ends, and you will receive power, Acts 1 8. The word power comes from the Greek word dunamis. And this term simply means ability. So when Jesus told his disciples that when the Holy Spirit comes, comes upon you, you're going re- to receive power, here's what they would have heard. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, and he's going to give you an ability to do something. Do you hear me? He's going to come upon you and give you an ability to do something. The question is to do what? What, what are you going to do when the Holy Spirit comes upon you? Well, Jesus went on to say, to be my witnesses. Ultimately, this tells us that the act of witnessing or leading people to Jesus, that's a work of the Holy Spirit. Listen, we can't win others in our own physical abilities. We need the Holy Spirit to give us the ability. Or or if we could, or, or I guess if you would, we need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. So Jesus told his disciples, go to Jerusalem, wait for the Holy Spirit to come. Then 50 days later on the day of Pentecost, while they were in the upper room praying, the Holy Spirit did indeed come upon them. And what was the result of the Holy Spirit coming upon them? What was the result? A lot of people would say, well, they spoke in tongues. They spoke in tongues. Well, that's true. They did speak in tongues. But that's not the end result. That is not the end result. Do not stop there. The end result was that day about 3,000 souls were added to the church. That's the end result, right? And I say that was the end result because remember, Jesus told them the Holy Spirit would empower them or give them the ability to be witnesses, to lead others to believe in Jesus. That's the end result. When a person believes in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, in that very moment, they're filled by the Holy Spirit. Now that the Spirit of God dwells in them, he's changing them from the inside out. Additionally, the believer in Jesus is empowered to be witnesses of Jesus when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. So typically, the indwelling of the Spirit happens right at conversion right away. Whereas the empowering of the Holy Spirit can sometimes happen separately after conversion. Sometimes it happens at the same time, but sometimes it's at a different time. Right? And that's what we're reading about here in Acts 8. The Apostle Peter and John, they hear that many of the Samaritans had already accepted Jesus. They had already been baptized. So the apostles prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Now, as a born-again Christian, you are spirit-filled. As a result, you're not, you're not in a position of trying to change yourself, but rather the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God is inside you, and he's transforming you, okay? Likewise, he wants to empower you with the ability to be witnesses, So instead of you trying to transform people from death to life and your own ability, pray and ask that God, pray and ask that God or the Holy Spirit to come upon you so that his power, his ability will overflow in your life and reach lost people. Francis Chan said that without the Holy Spirit, people operate in human strength and only accomplish human-sized results. If we want God-sized results, we absolutely need the power of the Holy Spirit. We absolutely need the power of the Holy Spirit. And I'm telling you, I don't understand how any church can think they could do it on their own. 
when I came to this church, I wanted to see a movement of people radically transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit and go out and fulfill their God-given purpose and mission. And here's the truth. This is what I love. When I said yes to Jesus, I was a C-minus student, (laughs) born in a home of four kids, all straight A's. All my siblings were straight A's. And I thought ministry was all about being polished and educated, not because that's what my dad taught. He never taught that. It was just a conclusion I came to on my own. But as I said yes to, to God, I've seen over and over, when he can use someone like me, he gets the glory and he gets the credit. And I, I'm here to tell you, God is doing something at New Heights Church. He is. He is doing something. We are seeing growth. We are seeing life transformation so much that we're, we're now starting to record some of these testimonies of the Holy Spirit changing and transforming lives. It's not just about numbers. It's about change and transformed lives. But, but what we need to realize is that we absolutely have to just surrender to the Holy Spirit and let the Holy Spirit do what only the Holy Spirit can do. And so in order for us to glorify God, Make sure that God is the one being glorified, not a pastor, not a team of elders, not a, not a bunch of amazing pastoral staff, but that God is gonna constantly get the glory. We have to be filled with the Holy Spirit. This was a promise for everyone, right? And I heard one of my favorite preachers of all time, he told the story when he was just 12 years old, the church he was attending had a guest evangelist come who was preaching on the Holy Spirit. He wanted to receive all that God had for him. So so he said he went to the back of the room where he knelt down, he folded his hands, and he began to worship the Lord. And the Lord began to move on his heart. At this point, the evangelist came by, stopped right by him, talking in a loud voice so that everybody could hear. And he said, this young man will never get the Holy Ghost until he learns to raise his hands and praise God out loud. When he had heard that, he got up and he left. Thought to himself he would never get it. He didn't ask God for the Holy Spirit again for many, many years. But the man had been totally wrong. You don't have to raise your hands. You don't have to kneel. You don't have to lie on the floor. In fact, the position of your body doesn't matter. What matters to God is the position of your heart. If your heart is open, you could be standing on your head and receive the Holy Spirit. Your body position doesn't make any difference unless God is telling you to do something. You've, some of you say, well, I'm confused, Pastor Justin, because you'll call people up to the front. I'll give, I'll give people a chance to respond. I'm gonna do it in a minute. We're gonna call people to the front. Again, it's your heart though. It's your heart. Sometimes we have to walk in obedience in order to receive the blessing. And there are some times that God is gonna say, I want you to get up. I want you to stand up in front of everybody in this congregation. And I want you to come up to the front. If God or the Holy Spirit's leading you to do that, don't expect to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit if you say in your seat. You understand that? Or don't expect to receive the the healing or the miracle. The Holy Spirit's gonna lead us differently. You've gotta be walking in obedience. And a lot of times I'll give invitations because I believe there's power in a declaration. We're declaring we need God, we want God. But, But make no mistake, it's the position of your heart because a lot of people can come up to the front every single week and not might res- their heart might not be in the right place. They're wanting to show everybody how spiritual they are. It could work both ways. So don't, don't misquote me, right? But I believe, I absolutely 100% believe we're seeing God's last day outpouring of his Holy Spirit. And I'm not weeping for our children. I'm not weeping for the future. 
and I'm not ignorant. I watch the news. I read the newspaper articles. I know where our country's going. But I serve a powerful God who sent his Holy Spirit to indwell and come upon his people to accomplish his purpose. And I want you to know, no matter what happens in this world, God's mission will not be stopped. It won't be stopped. They've been throwing Christians in jail for years. And guess what? The church keeps growing. I am not worried about my children living in this world because I know that they serve a powerful God who indwells inside of them and wants to come upon them to use them mightily to build his kingdom. And so I tell my kids every night, Allie, Asher, and Liam, you serve an all-miracle, amazing, powerful God who wants to fill you up and come upon you so that you can do incredible things for his kingdom. So what I wanna do today is I'm gonna close and when I'm done praying, you are officially dismissed. But for those who wanna stay, I want to my left, your right. This is for anybody who just wants to come up to the altar and seek God and pursue God on your own. To my right, I'm gonna have the prayer team come up and line up. This is for those you saying, I'm not sure I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. How do I know I'm filled with the Holy Spirit? I might not give you the AG answer today. Here's, here's what the answer I'm gonna give you you're gonna know you're filled with the Holy Spirit because you're gonna be making disciples of Jesus. You're gonna be bold in your witness. And if you feel like you don't have that, that's something you need, I want you to come up front and we're gonna practice what the, the, the New Testament says. We've got prayer leaders who are gonna lay their hands on you and pray that you, the Holy Spirit would come upon you. Why? So that you can go out and be witnesses. I'll tell you what, we, we need the Holy Spirit to continually come upon us. I don't care if you had the experience when you were 11 years old at Bible camp, you need it again. We need a constantly, the Holy Spirit to constantly come upon us again and again and again. We need to constantly be, have the Holy Spirit come upon us again and again and again. But here's the second thing I'm gonna do to my right, because I, I don't do this typically, but I believe, I believe there's people in here who are gonna receive a miracle today. So I'm gonna ask if you're, if you're battling sickness, you're battling illness, if you've got somebody in your life that's battling that and you wanna stand in the gap for them, if you've got sons or daughters who have walked away from the faith and you wanna pray for them, if you've got, if you're battling addictions or you know somebody who's battling addictions, I wanna open up to my right, your left, I wanna open up the altar for those of you to come and I want our, our prayer leaders to be ready to pray for a breakthrough and I want our prayer leaders to be ready to pray that we're full of the Holy Spirit, amen? If you just wanna, wait on God and pursue him on, on your own, that's cool too. And we're gonna leave this side of the altar open for you to do that as well. You can praise him from your seat too. Remember, just be obedient to what the Holy Spirit's telling you to do. Father, I pray right now that you would send your Holy Spirit, that your Holy Spirit would fall upon us, each and every one of us, so that we can experience that third relationship with the Holy Spirit, that we can walk and we can be bold in our witness. Holy Spirit, fall upon us. And I pray for everybody in here who needs that miracle, who has kids that are not serving the Lord, who knows somebody who's sick or those that are sick in this building today and they need a miracle. Pray today you would honor our faith. Believe the Holy Spirit's moving in the service and wants to do something. So we're gonna pray for healing for those who are battling sickness. We're gonna pray for uh, that our sons and daughters who have walked away from God would come back. 
she would heal their minds and their hearts and restore them. God, we're gonna pray for those battling addictions today that they would be set free through the power of the Holy Spirit. We invite the Holy Spirit into this place right now that you would have your way. And we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus.